first you want to know who your target audience is. Then you want to have that core message of what you're trying to say to that target audience about your brand. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse. And today my guest is Jeffrey Golden. And Jeffrey is a narrative designer for video games and has a passion for interactive storytelling. With over 15 years of experience, multiple medias, and, and we'll get into a little bit more about that in a minute. How are you doing today, Jeffrey? I'm doing all right, Matt, all things considered. A little crazy out there, but it's fun in here in the digital marketing master's world. When I first heard the title of your show, it immediately conjured to mind like an 80s Saturday morning cartoon, like they got sucked into the internet and became the digital marketing masters. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> like a He-Man type thing with the like magic computers and, you know, glowing beard. So do you remember, do you remember the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? Of course I remember the Dungeons dragons cartoon they went on the circus ride into the dragons exhibit and it sucked them into the to the dungeon master world it sure did to immediately be confronted by a giant dragon right but yeah that's the thing they got sucked in right to the to the digital marketing masters world that's right yeah you get on that roller coaster and all of a sudden you're confronted by a weird bald man in in robes who is like i'm the the true digital marketing master you must (laughs) each have a special digital marketing skill if you want to survive this kingdom and they're like, the lady jumps out and, and she's like, SEO power. <laughs> Management. <laughs> Management. I'll see how this one to do. That's right. Somebody's Scheduling. like, social media. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Can you maybe give our listeners a better kind of understanding of what it is that you do? That's great. Well, I like to say I'm a writer of games and multimedias. So I am by trade a narrative designer for video games. So a publishing house will come to me and they'll say, Jeffrey, we've got a game, but it doesn't have a story of any kind. Can you help us put a story into this game? Characters, dialogue, plot. And then I do that. I write for them and we give their game some story. We give their game some a narrative. Sometimes they hire me at the beginning of a process and sometimes they hire me at the very end to write this dialogue and stuff. So, yeah, sometimes it's like, hey, I want you to come up with the story from the beginning. The story is is intricate. And other times it's like, hey, can you write a 500 ways for a character to say ouch? And then I, I, I go into a Google spreadsheet and I come up with 500 ways for a character to say, ouch, owie, yowza, that hurts. Before I was in games and I've worked for a number of uh, studios around the world, including some like Capcom, Square Enix, at Warner Brothers and Disney. I've also worked in a number of other mediums as well. I've written comics. I've written tabletop games. I've written some animation, a little bit of TV a little bit of movies and yeah, I just, I, I I really love games. I also was at one point a copywriter. So I've actually written social media copy for a couple of agencies. I worked for, for Hulu among other clients on star for a little bit. So yeah, I have definitely have a fondness and appreciation for the work that goes into digital marketing. Nice. You've kind of run the gambit there. 
That's right. Oh, I'm a, a yeah, a writer of for a lot of different things. I've had a very a fun and interesting career. So I reached out to you because I actually found you online. Somebody else on another podcast interviewed you and I heard it and I was like, man, I think I should talk to this guy. <laughs> and when I looked you up, one of the things I found is you have sort of a snackable sized adventure game. It's called Adventure Snack. Do you want to tell us about that? Absolutely. So let's say you're somebody who enjoys a little bit of adventure in their day, a little bit of excitement, but you don't have time and you don't have the ability anymore with our current situation to to go out and to, say, play a role-playing game with friends, you know, play the game of Dungeons & Dragons, as we were talking about earlier. Well, that's where Adventure Snack comes in. It's an email role-playing game. So I email you these sort of micro-sized Choose your, we don't say the full name of it because it's very kind of a choose your path adventure game. And then, and then you play it in your email and they come twice a month and they each have multiple choices. So you can go on, on different adventures. It's a lot of fun and it's free to play at adventuresnack.com. And I do it just for kicks, just because I, I think it's fun to sort of turn email, something that we consider to be all about productivity, you know, all, well, I've got so many emails in my inbox, to something that's fun, to something you could do on your lunch break. How does that work for, like, if somebody gets an email and there's some kind of choice to make, uh, is it all in the same email or do you just get a different email? Like- it's, all in the, it's all in the same email. So each game is self-contained. So we did one we did one recently that said the title of the subject line is your God box account is full. And it turns out that you are the benevolent ruler of a galaxy of a, of a universe. And, but your account is full. So you have to decide which things in the universe are you going to delete? So you have your choice between like, there's some old mountains or there's like, kryptonite by three doors down and there's different selections you can make and depending on which ones you make you you'll you'll free up enough space i think the obvious choice there is kryptonite because you just you're gonna save superman well what if you're gonna say wait you're gonna save kryptonite or you're gonna delete kryptonite i would i think i'd delete the kryptonite you would delete it, but what about what about all the kids whose it was the number one song at their prom? <laughs> You're gonna take away those memories from all those those kids. So there's some trick, there's some trick, there's some strategy here. It's not all cut and dry with adventure snack. That's right. You gotta think it through. <laughs> so I actually I signed up for this, but I haven't got my first email yet because I just signed signed up before we were talking. So it's adventuresnack.substack.com if you guys are interested in that. That's right. Or adventuresnack.com. I purchased the URL so that it, and it just forwards. So that way you, you're easy to remember. Adventuresnack.com. It's always, it's easy. And yeah, it's a sub stack as the, the, it's one of the, it's, it tends to be the a top sub stack. People uh, like the posts and it gets on their charts there, which is really cool. So I've been excited about that. So kind of a fun fact is when I was a kid, I entered a contest and I won in Warlock magazine. I, they had a, a choose your own adventure contest. You had to have like 50 areas that you could go to, right? Or 50 oh, little paragraphs in it. Yeah. So you wrote a, you wrote a, a solo RPG. You wrote a, a mini adventure game book. Yeah. It was like a little choose your own, choose your own path type thing. 
this is literally what Adventure Stack is. And actually, I wrote one. So we have that in common. I wrote one for a magazine called Rolled and Told, which was a D&D magazine that came out. That was a more recent affair. And that's kind of where I got the caught the bug, so to speak, for writing these single player adventure games. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I've read a ton of them. I like the fighting fantasy and car wars and things like that. Right. When I, I still have actually a copy of the original plastic car wars box set oh, version. You can't see it because the green screen, obviously you can't see it when you're listening on the podcast. If I were to pull this back a little bit here, then is car is the car wars box set right behind you? It's not, but I do have just rows and rows of Dungeons and Dragons books behind me. Amazing. That's, you know, something I love about, about Dungeons and Dragons and about game books is that you just never know, like, you know, who you're going to, who you're going to connect with it about. Like we have our conceptions about like, Oh, this is the type of person that plays these games, but really it's like, it's a lot of people. And, you know, it's part of a lot of our childhoods. I I used to play, I didn't play D and D growing up. I played a different game called aberrant, which I believe was from white wolf games. And it was, it was sort of like X-Men if, but legally, Distinct. Completely distinct. sued by Marvel Comics. Well, there's the Marvel Superheroes game, right? Came out, what, 1980 or 81 or something like that? That's right. You know, the funny thing, I was, I was really into rule systems when I was younger with those games because that was around the time that the first kind of graphical adventure games had first come out on the computers, right? But before that, it was stuff like Zork. Right. Yeah. Zork, Wizard. And then there's a whole series of them also that was like there was one called Mission Impossible. Right. That came out before any of the Mission Impossible movies. Amazing. Right. They were text adventures where you had to type in what you wanted to do. So it would it would read out to you something like you can't get in the room to defuse the bomb because the door is blocked. And you would type like push door and it would say the door moves a little, but it doesn't, you know, open all the way. And that's a big actual example or it says i don't understand push right and then you have to try to figure out what word to use yeah it was always the most frustrating thing about playing those games which i I played growing up too i had an i had an apple ii and so i definitely played my fair share of uh, text adventures and graphical text adventures and yeah that was always the hardest thing was parsing the text and figure out what things the computer would actually let you would actually let you do really funny but there was a sense of mystery with it there was a you know i think you compare that to a lot of games today where it's like so much instruction up top and like people are i think developers are more cognizant about trying to you know you know acquaint a player with their system and try to give you hints and try to t- tutorials and figure things out but there is something really funny about just being dropped in and just having to figure it out completely from scratch. There is something there is something infuriating but also exciting about about those about those games. We say in game design now the first level can never be too easy. But if you remember something like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure oh. game, it just oh said it's God. dark. And that was it. And you had to like type stuff and like he, he try and knew. figure out how to turn the lights on, you know, and then figure out how to go outside. And but that was kind of the genius of it is that he was sort of the, I believe because I believe Douglas Adams wrote those right. Didn't he write those himself? Yeah, he understood the conventions of those games and then parodied them 
you know, he understood that you would be you were generally super frustrated playing these games. So he just amped it up to 11 and made it the, just made, made it the craziest thing. Yeah, they were brilliant games. Though. Yeah, God bless him. That was, that was a great game. I remember that. I mean, there's a lot of great games now, but there's also a lot of crap, honestly. I mean, there's just like the internet, right? It's <laughs> like the internet. Most of the stuff on the internet is garbage, right? And then, you know... 10% of it is worthwhile. And the, the problem is that so much of it is just copies of copies of copies of copies where they don't care about what it, what it is or what the quality is or anything like that. They don't care about story. You know, they don't care about any of that kind of stuff. Right. And the same thing happens in marketing, right? Yeah. How many times have you seen a brand that you're like, you could switch out the logo, like the text of the logo and the, like all the logos look the same and the colors look the same and their emails could all switch out. It wouldn't matter if they were a healthcare provider or like a tire company, you could just interchangeably switch their brand and no one would know the difference. That was right? a smooth transition, by the way. I like the way you transitioned from uh, role playing games back to the subject of this podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's because I'm a pro because I've done this a hundred times now. So you're a pro you're good. Yeah, it's true. I mean that the, it's one of the strangest things working in digital marketing is you look at a lot of guidelines that as a copywriter, you look at a lot of guidelines that companies set up and they, a lot of them tend to be exactly the same. Like they fill out like, who is our brand voice? Our brand voice is relatable. That's you know, right. our, 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 these words that like, don't really describe anything. You know what I mean? And I would say this is just a key to writing in general. I found it true in marketing. I find it true as a game writer is adjectives, is specific adjectives to describe your character, your brand voice, you know, whoever it is you're writing for, because you want to get a sense of personality. I think a lot of brands are shy. They're afraid to have personality because they don't want to alienate potential customers. And I think it's exactly backwards. You have to be specific in order for a specific audience to relate to you and in order to get attention. We love like if just, just thinking about like Twitter, you know, we love following specific people, specific accounts because of their personalities, because we know they're going to give us a unique and interesting perspective. And I think with with a lot of brands, even brands, you know, that you might be a fan of, you don't want to follow them on Twitter because or wherever, whatever platform, because they don't they're not particularly interesting. It's like, well, yeah, I, I you know, I I like their tires, but, I, you, you know, this is right. how much do I need to hear about, you know, like their covid policy or something like you just don't give a shit. Right. It's just yeah. like. And that, I mean, this is an absolute failure in marketing and it happens constantly every single day I see it. And that is, there is nothing that stands out about their brand whatsoever, especially in my industry. I mean, I work in a marketing industry, nine out of 10 digital marketing companies, websites, you could change the name of the company and you wouldn't know the difference, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and they're probably hiring, you know, I, I mean, look, I've, I've hired a number of folks on Fiverr. I think Fiverr could be great for certain things, for certain tasks, but, you know, in terms of like creative writing, it's harder because if you're hiring a writer who is just looking to crank this out and who has a template and a stamp formula and stamp it out, right, you're going to get results that feel stamped out. So that's the, the difference between, say, you know, to, to going through the process of going on Indeed or 
Craigslist or even or whatever and, and trying to looking at resumes and trying to find and, and writing samples and trying to find a, a specific writer who will understand this, but, you know, who will understand the challenge versus I'm just going to hire somebody to do my website and just somebody to, to get it done, right. you know, get it done. The problem is that everybody looks interchangeable, so they become interchangeable, right? Yeah. So you can say, I'm just going to find a web designer. So you type in web design and everybody's website looks the same that does web design, even though they think it looks really different because they used a different stock photo off the same <laughs> stock photo website, right? And like, it's just, there's there's almost no creativity put into it whatsoever unless they're a much larger agency who has the money to do that, right? Yeah, and it, I mean, it's not just marketing agencies, it's anything, right? You can type in any business or business service or product into Google and you could just go down the list and just one after the other, they look the same, 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 you know? And so what people do now is they just go to the first one. And if they don't answer the phone, they go to the next one and they call them. If they don't answer the phone, they go to the next one and call them. Nobody wants to fill out a website form anymore. Right. Or even leave a message. Why would you, when there's a thousand choices for everything that you want at your fingertips, right? That's what digital marketing, that's the, the promise of really good digital marketing is to set yourself apart and make, Make, say, pricing not the only factor in whether or not a client wants to work with you. Like I, I think about so so I ran a business for eight years with my co-founder, Amanda. We ran a publishing house called The Devastator and we were a, a comedy book press. So we we had writers from The Daily Show, The Onion, Adult Swim, and we made humor books. So, you know, we did that for years. And one of the challenges with running a press is hiring printing companies, right, is hiring printers. And if we needed to do, you know, a small job in Los Angeles, you know, we would look up, you know, you Google Los Angeles printing and then you just go through the websites. All the websites are basically the same. So you just call them. But if one of them was like, but 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 I remember going with one printer specifically that was open for a while that specialized in zines. So in addition to making books, we also made zines, which if you're, you know, for those who, who aren't familiar, they tend to be black and white. You know, they tend to be smaller in size, print size. They tend to be cheaply made, you know, and, and cranked out because the idea is to just get something out fast and something fast and dirty. You know, it's like that's kind of what, z, what zines, what's fun about zines. And I remember that there was a printing company that had sort of an indie DIY aesthetic that they differentiated themselves by saying that they specialized in scenes, that they were good at making scenes. We went with them. We went with them because they showed personality. They showed they showed that they specialized in something. And and so so yeah, so we went with them for our scenes until they until they closed up shop. We we went with we went with them. I think having that specialty, having that brand voice because it, it wasn't just that they said that they specialized in scenes but they also had a had sort of a an authentic quality a authentic diy quality to the way that they to their copy and to who they were as founders of that uh, printing company they 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 had that so it made me say like oh yeah this is this is a great choice because even though maybe it was a little bit maybe it was 10 cents more per per zine than another house, 25 cents more per zine than another house. But I knew that they would get it done right. They knew they would understand the job. So I felt there was a sense of trust there. 
it is and building trust is what you're trying to do with your online private presence all the time because that is the only differentiator that you have because everybody looks the same because they're all just text on a screen and a listing of search results right <laughs> exactly you know, talking about the creative things, it kind of reminds me of the, you need to have a differentiator for your business. But there's also the idea of I don't know if you've seen any of Jay Bear's stuff like talk triggers, where he's talking about something that you can do that makes your business stand out that you can do for all of your customers it has to be operational. So it means it's repeatable has to be something you can do for all your customers. And it can't be some giant one off thing. It has to be something you could do all the time. So a good example of a talk trigger for one of our clients, we have a client in Washington state that does bail bonds. They get people out of jail, right? So if your, your cousin is caught drunk driving and he's in jail and you need to go and pay a bond or whatever, you pay these people, they arrange to get them out of jail, but then they give your cousin a free t-shirt, right? Why would you get a, why would you want a t-shirt that says that you're at, you know, for bailed out of jail, right? But they give right. them this t-shirt and on the back of it, it says, cause your mama wants you home. And people wear them, they take selfies with them and stuff, and they tell all their friends and stuff. Surprisingly, there is a really big word of mouth referral business in the bail bond industry. Yes, yeah, I believe it. A lot it. of people who hang out together tend to go to jail. So, well, and also, like, what do you think? It's like, it also is probably something that happens. Let's say it happens infrequently. Right. It's like something that's like, oh, OK, I, I, you know, I didn't pay a number of parking tickets or whatever. But, you know, it's like it's like if you're somebody if you're panicked and you're like trying to get somebody out of jail, it's like th having that slight bit of recognition ahead of time. If you're not familiar with the system, with the bail bond system, if you're not familiar with the different options, having that like one memory of like, oh, seeing a guy with a T-shirt like implanted in your head, it's like, oh, I, Oh, I, I wonder who that T-shirt guy was. That, that was a bit. Oh, yes, it was this, you know. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's uh, ingenious. I, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Differentiator can also be in copywriting. Right. And I actually you'll probably really like this one. So my wife bought this light. It goes on top of our fish tanks, like a saltwater fish tank. And it's programmable. So you can like hit some buttons and it does like lightning effects like a storm. And it you know goes on and off at certain times a day, whatever. But that's not the important part. The important part is that they sent back an email and they're like the elves have packaged it and they've been hammering and putting and building this thing for you. And it's got like pictures of little elves and crap on it. And she gets a card from the elf that was the one who packaged it and it's signed and it's written in like, you know, hi, I'm your elf who did this thing. And, and you know, and, you know, we got out all the other elves in the tree to help me put this together and put it in the box for you safely to ship it to your house. And, you know, it's absolute differentiator. She still talks about it. Right. And, yeah. and that was years ago that we bought this thing and how many other Amazon packages have shown up at your door between three years ago and now and you still talk about the one that had the elves that packaged it for you oh there's no question it, it's it creates like a magical experience it's suddenly it's not so much a product as it is a story right and that's I think a differentiator with with great copywriting is that you can make somebody feel like they've gotten something special. And I mean, it goes the other way too. I mean, e even you're getting a, you're, you're, you know, you're getting a pair of headphones and it just comes with this little, with a little card and it says, you know, 
these headphones have been checked for, you know, for this, that, and the other thing, you know, we hope you use them magnificently or whatever, you know, and suddenly you're, you're like, you look at this lovely printed card and you look at this nice message and you're like, oh, that's really nice. That's really cool. It's just a little, little thing like that can suddenly, can suddenly give you a, a brand loyalty. Suddenly you feel like, oh yeah, why would I get my headphones from anywhere else? This company is acknowledging all the things that, you know, is acknowledging all the different things that, that went into it, you know, when really that same copy might be on the, might be on a similar, those similar specs might be on the same Amazon page for a hundred other, you know, headphones, but because it was phrased nicely and displayed beautifully in the packaging, Oh, suddenly this, this company cares about me. They care about their, their headphones and they care about the experience. Right. And the what eighth of a cent when you're printing 10,000 tiny paper cards, right? <laughs> that it costs almost nothing, you know, to have that in compared to the other headphones that I got that are crushed into the tiniest plastic shipping bag <laughs> possible and you rip it open and hope they're not broken, right? <laughs> it's a different experience, right? One is an experience and one is nothing at all. Another good example that I've seen with that kind of stuff is, and, and talking as we're talking about gaming, I actually bought these dice. It was like a Kickstarter thing and they're just six-sided regular dice, all right? But they have like they look like they have like a, I don't know, like circuitry in them. So it's like they were like these like cyberpunk dice kind of thing, right? They're just normal dice, but I like dice. So I bought some dice. Anyways, it came to me in in a bag like normal, right, kind of thing. But you pull it out and there was like this tiny kind of little cardboard box. And the outside was printed like a circuit board and then it had like a lock mechanism printed on the cardboard that you open up and then like the inside had foam cut to the shape of the dice and the dice came out of this little <laughs> like it was just amazing right <laughs> and then they were like six dollars or something right but you know they spent that extra 50 cents a unit on the packaging telling the story of how awesome they are and i still have the package i've had it for like a decade right like yeah. How much stuff do you keep the packaging for? Unless, you know, you're a pack rat or something, but no, very little. But again, but you it's, it's it's a positive memory and it's a story. It's a story that they they told you about what these dice are, what they what they mean. And to throw it out would be to throw away a story. And it's like throwing away. A it's like throwing away a book. You know, it's like, oh, suddenly it has more weight to it. It's not just it's not just a utility. It's not just a product. It's something that I'm connecting with on a deeper level. So when, let me, we'll kind of switch up a little bit. Sure. When you're writing something, like you have to write a script for whether that's a game or for something else, where do you get the ideas from if you don't really have anything from them, you know? Maybe you just have some some sprites or some some alpha level programming. It doesn't have all the graphics and stuff into it. And they're like, come up with a story for my thing. Where does that <laughs> process start? It starts with it starts with the gameplay, because I feel like especially for games. So so this the what you just described is much more common in game development than in any other type of writing. It's sort of unusual to to. You know, if you were if you were writing for a TV show or whatever, all of, you know, everything would be planned out. You would know exactly what you were writing. Somebody would tell you literally write this, you know, and you would do it. The the difference. But in gaming, 
opposed to it being a writer-driven medium, it's a design-driven medium. So typically the game designer is at the top of the food chain. So they will design a system of play before they'll think about theming and story. So, you know, they'll they'll determine, okay, here is like a little rectangle that moves around and it can seem appears to hop and it appears to jump. And, you know, okay, what is that? It's the Super Mario Brothers. You know what I mean? Like that's that somebody came in and said it's the Super Mario Brothers, you know. So, well, in this case, Miyamoto did. But before he just before it was even, you know, in a lot of games before it was this is what the story is. It is just literally here's a way of playing. Here's a type of play. So uh, to answer your question, it does come down to gameplay. Right. So if I am seeing a little dot on this, you know, little dot on the screen jumping around, you know, I'm thinking, okay, like retro, I'm thinking probably something that may be like something evocative of like an 80s platformer, perhaps, or maybe it's something about exploration. If the dot is particularly small, but the space is particularly wide, that tells me, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, this is about exploring a deep and, and strange fantasy world right and so that i might come up with ideas based on that it's like oh, okay well this is you know a lost elf in the forest and is trying to, to go back to the to to you know to their tribe so you know it's it's it all comes down to the game but you know if i'm seeing it's a you know it's like a 3d shooter or something with a gun you know it's like oh, okay well you know there's violence here this is maybe for this is probably for adults it's likely it's more for adults maybe we need to think of a more adult you know, adult themes for the story. Cool. And when, and maybe from kind of more of a business copywriting perspective, I know that there's a lot of business processes and, and industries that have basically no story behind them whatsoever. And they may come to a copywriter or someone to, you know, develop a story for them. Do you have any tips on how someone can develop a story? Like, I know that like a good example of one that I've seen recently was a plumbing company. It was just the last name of the guy who owned the company, but his kids took it over and they changed the name of it to Clogbusters. And then they have this like toilet plunger with eyeballs on it. And he's like the Clogbuster, you know, and, <laughs> and so there's like a little bit of a kind of story to it, but you still understand they're plumbers, right? Right. Is there a good process for people to maybe try to come up with some kind of story to add to their brand? Absolutely. The number one thing is first you want to know who your target audience is. Then you want to have that core message of what you're trying to say to that target audience about your brand. So let's use Clogbusters. That's a great example. Okay. So a gentleman, older gentleman, right? He passes the, the, the thing on to his kids, right? I'm assuming, do you know how old they were? Let's say they were my age. Let's say they were in their 30s or so, right? Sure. So when I when I think of hiring a plumber, I think of it as like the worst. It's like the worst thing I would have to do because what it means is something is broken. <laughs> and that is that is completely unfun. That is, you know, that is my my floor getting soaked and really, you know, my bathroom floor floor is going to be gross, right? Okay. So the kids take it over and they probably realize, well, if we want uh, if we want a younger clientele, how come there's no plumbing services that are geared 
specifically towards people in, say, their 20s and 30s, young homeowners or apartment dwellers, you know, if you look at plumbers list and yeah, it's a bunch of people's names. It's like, you know, if, if it's, you know, A.A. Aronson's Plumbing, A.A. You know, Adelson's plumbing, you know, triple A plumbing, triple A star plumbing, triple A plus plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> so so what they're saying is what what this company seems to be saying to me, just based on again, I don't know anything about, but just based on what you're saying, is that like, hey, like you're a young person who remembers Ghostbusters and who who has seen your number of action films. This is like that for you. This is like a ghost Plumbing, you know, these disasters are horrible messes and you can rely on you can rely on us not just to do the plumbing, but to understand what you're feeling, to understand the emotion of that. This is overwhelming and gross and weird. It's like we are comparing it to what people must have felt like in Ghostbusters. Right. right. And so that's I think it's perfect example of core audience who are my who am i selling to right and b what do i want them to know about our service what's important for them to know and then i think you can build a story from that foundation you can build an interesting story now not all stories are going to be fun sometimes the best story is just like you know oh we're your local bank we've been in business since 18 18- 40 and you're you know for generations of wisconsin homeowners have relied on us and you can rely on us to this day it's a proud tradition maybe they have people working there who are descendants of the people who originally worked at that bank and so that's the story that they want to tell is is reliability that's a perfectly valid story. And if that's, you wouldn't necessarily want to be the goofy bank. Right. <laughs> you, you yeah, it has, to fit the, has to fit the business, right? It has to fit the business. You don't want to be the, the wacky brain surgeon. Hey, everybody. Waka, waka, waka. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Nick, you know. <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminds me of the dentist from the little shop of horrors, right? He's the, the crazy dentist. <laughs> he loves hurting people. He loves hurting people. That's the opposite of the dentist that you want, right? Yeah, maybe not a great brand voice, the evil dentist from from, yeah. from Little Shop of Horrors, but got attention and did seem to have a lot of clients in the waiting room. So maybe there's That's a true. sadomasochistic, uh, you know, client base. I think he was like the only, he was like the only dentist in town, right? Mm. So you got to go to the dentist yeah. who's who's a jerk and loves your pain. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about. You have a project that you're working on right now you're working on a game called sandship yes did you want to mention that a little bit i know i just downloaded it too so i could test it out but i haven't had a chance to play it yet so that's great yeah so i'm a, a the narrative designer for sandship which is a game by a uh, rock bike games it's a number one strategy game on ios and android and it was named one of apple's games we love and the premise is you wake up and you are the apprentice to to an engineer in an abandoned, weird, mysterious planet. And you are inside what is called a sand ship, which is a way that this planet creates everything that it needs. But the engineer, whose name is Harvey, 
doesn't know what happened to this world. And so you go on an adventure within Sandship to try to figure out, put the pieces together, the mystery of what happened to the planet called Naranti. And, and along the way, you are helping people by creating resources for them. So you, you, your Sandship learns skills. So first you, you might learn how to make carbon rods. Then you'll learn how to make plastic bottles and you're learning all these stuff to to far off science fiction objects that we could never imagine in this world you know and as your sand ship becomes more efficient you you start to learn tips and tricks to make the assembly line run faster so you can make more interesting and different sort of things and uh, when you do that it, it helps more and more people in the world. So it's really it's really interesting game, and it's been a lot of fun to work on it. This was an example where they, they this is very typical, they had been working on the game, developing it for years before they got to me, and they had some loose ideas about what the story was, and then they asked me to put together lore documents, and I sort of created a to sort of got the opportunity to create this world and create this, you know, why did this happen? Who are these characters? Who are the important people in this world? It was a really great opportunity. And uh, yeah, the people at uh, the developers at rock Bike games are, are really awesome. They've been great to work with. And I think it's a, it's a really fun game. It's a challenge. It's, it's, it's great when, if you want, if you're looking for a mobile gaming challenge, I highly recommend it. Nice. I think one other thing I kind of wanted to just really quickly kind of sneak in there. I know that you've done a lot of work in print and there's not a whole lot of print anymore, but there seems to be kind of a resurgence of kind of niche print specific zines and stuff like you were talking about for certain types of things like gaming and, and, and other stuff like that. Do you think that there is kind of a resurgence coming of more of that kind of small run print material? Or do you think a lot of that is going to kind of fall to the to the newsletter kind of area, you know, email marketing, Twitch, that kind of stuff? So, yeah, it's a great question. I think that, well, first of all, I mean, there's plenty of print, you know, it's just all being done by, you know, five big company, you know, five big book companies, you know, and then some some smaller ones. But yeah, can what about small press? Well, I think there'll always be small press. You know, if you go, we used to do, you know, we go to, to the Comic Cons back when you could hold a Comic Con. Uh, we would we would go to San Diego and New York. And, you know, there is vibrant and and wonderful small press sections. You go to, you know, Zine Fest, like L.A. Zine Fest is a great show in, in Los Angeles. You know, there's a, a vibrant community of people making making print materials. But I think the challenge is, like with all businesses today, you know, it's the stratif- it's the stratification. It's that, you know, you have very few businesses who are able to do it professionally with high quality for, you know, to, so all their employees can make a living and then more and more, and you have more and more small press becomes hobbyist because it's unaffordable. And I'll give you an example of something. And we, we wrapped up Devastator Press as, you know, as a publishing house, the Devastator is a publishing house. We still use it as a consulting, creative consulting company, but we wrapped it up about a year, I think, before, the president put in tariffs on imports from 
China. And a lot of printing is done in China and in Korea because it's so much cheaper. It's it's infinitely cheap. I mean, you can't even if, if you run a publishing house, you, you know this to be true. It's so much cheaper and already print media runs on very tight margins. So I know if we were still running Devastator and, you know, those tariffs had gone into place, we wouldn't have been able to we wouldn't have been able to sustain it because the, the, the tariffs would have would have put the print the 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 cost of publishing so far up that we wouldn't have been we would have had to charge double what we were charging for our for our books. You know, and they were already like small books. That was kind of our niche was, you know, fun little small funny books. You know, and so like, you know, pe- you know, raising the price on them, people would be like, why am I paying so much money for this book? And the answer is because it would have cost a lot more. <laughs> it would have cost a lot more to print. So yeah, I do I do worry about I, I, I think there'll always be these big companies who are making you know, who are, who are making books, Macmillan, I think Macmillan will be fine, you know, Random House will be fine. And then there'll always be, you know, hobbyists and very small, you know, art students and, and really awesome people who are making these cool things. I just think it's that, that middle is getting, getting harder and harder to be somebody who's making a middle-class income as you know, running a small press, I, I think it's it's more difficult now than ever. So yeah, that's there are a lot of challenges. Will it all go to the internet? There are advantages, but then there's also disadvantages. I mean, okay, so you take your, you know, you you decide, okay, we're going to be a digital only, right? We're going to sell through digital books through Amazon. Well, Amazon takes what thirty percent cut, thirty to seventy, depending upon your pricing. 30 to 70% cut, 70%. How do you make any money? It's in some ways worse than, 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 your, than your printing costs in terms of overall share. It's uh, 70% is, is insane. It, yeah. it, it, I mean, most, what, most people pick the 30 option, you know. It's only certain pricing levels that you get to that. And then usually you're, you're going to see that in stuff like academic books and things like that where it's, $60 for a book. They would normally be 30, but they got to cover the margin on Amazon. So they bump it up to 60, you know, stuff like that. Exactly. I think people think, and I don't blame consumers for thinking it because it's just, it's, you know, but there's no, but no education around it. It's like, oh, okay. Well, if it's not physical, then it must cost less and therefore we should charge less. And the, the problem is the digital gatekeepers that we are buying most of our digital content through, whether it's the Steam store for video games, you know, Nintendo store for video game, you know, or it's Amazon for ebooks or whatever. Apple, Apple for apps. Epic is suing Apple right now over this very issue. They take a huge cut and it's you know, for a company like Epic, they can afford to fight it. For a small indie developer, they they can't. They just have to accept it, and so it cuts into margins, and then it makes it makes it harder to run a business. Do I think these companies deserve a share? Yeah, absolutely. For for distrib- there are costs to distribution. It, it's not free, but you know, is it worth thirty to seventy percent? I don't think so, but you know. Some may disagree, but it's it's hard for small businesses, you know, small content businesses to run. 
like Apple and Google pointing the finger at each other saying, look, we're not a monopoly because the other one's there is just asinine, right? Because they both charge 30% on all the apps and stuff in the app store. I think it's still 30%, right? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a duopoly. Yeah, it's a duopoly. That's all it is. I, I mean, it's essentially price. And then they both point at Microsoft. They say, yeah, but look, they have an app store too, but nobody's got a Microsoft phone in their pocket anymore, right? So right. like, I mean, yeah, it's just great. And I, like I said, I was in the, uh, I worked with a mobile game startup company. We made about 10 games over a period of about 16 months. We were, we were stamping stuff out really fast, but we just were not able to sustainably do it. I mean, it cost us money to run that company and everyone was working for free and it still cost us money. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just an endeavor that is really difficult to, to get around unless you've got, you know, some deep pockets and you've got a good system and you run a tight ship and you've got good marketing because you've got to make up that spread on not only the development up front, but then you got to pay 30% on the back end for distribution as well as the ongoing costs of keeping server maintenance and bug fixes and all that kind of stuff too. Right? Yeah, certificate costs. There's all kinds of things that, that, that you just don't, you don't realize until you're trying to upload the game that it's like, Oh, you need an Apple certificate. I, I did one once years ago called for devastator called Comic-Con star stalker. That was a game that I did. I developed and designed and, and it was, we released it in time for Comic-Con and we got some press from CNN and from other places about, Hey, you can play the, you know, play Comic-Con at home. It was a lot of fun to do it, but yeah, there's all these costs. It's just like, Oh yeah, you, you, you have to be a member of the Apple that you have to have a certificate. Developer certificate. And then you need oh, okay. a <laughs> account and you know, I'd like, I think what developer accounts are hundred bucks or something on Apple and 25 on Google. But if you're just starting out, I mean, every dollar counts, right? Oh yeah, you're making when you're making nothing, a hundred dollars is is quite a bit of money. So you know, right. that, that's that, that's the, there's a lot of hidden, a lot of hidden fees that you don't uh, you don't necessarily know going in. I know that this happens a lot in Kickstarters too. I've run two Kickstarters, and you know, and I, I have a number of friends who run Kickstarters, and it's the same thing where. You know, you you run this Kickstarter and you do these estimates, you know, and you, you come up with this figure. Okay, here's the figure that we need in order to, to make, in order to, you know, in order to break even. So that's what we're going to raise. And then what you don't realize is, oh, well, you did that estimate, but, you know, you did a printing estimate in back in May. Now that printing estimate is actually twice as much because of this, that, and right, the other. Tariffs and taxes and shipping changes and. Yep. And things things change, and it's it's oh, so we didn't so we didn't know that, you know. So there's there's all kinds of little fun things you find out along the way. People look at Kickstarter and they see somebody made a million dollars, and they're like, "Whoa, that guy made a million dollars!" But in actuality, there's cost of goods, printing, shipping, development, advertising, all of the things that go into a normal business. Plus, you got to pay all your backers, and usually, you're selling the thing cheap you know, to begin with to the backers. And then, so, you know, like you're lucky if you make five, 10% off the top on most Kickstarters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so oh, yeah. hooray, we made 50 grand for a year of work with a team of seven, you know, like <laughs> you guys get $6,000 each for this year of work you put in. Right. Yeah, exactly. Some stuff works on Kickstarter and other platforms like that. Right. I mean, oh yeah, no, I mean, some does, some doesn't, but Things were, I mean, it's, but yeah, you're a hundred percent right that the perception 
of we made a million dollars, it's very different than the reality of we made a million dollars. You'd never really make a million dollars. And that, and, and, you know, listen, in some, in some instances, it's just poor planning. You know, you're an artist, you want to get this thing out there, you are rushing it and you, you don't do your homework, you know, that's fair. But then there's also things that are legitimately like, oh, okay, we, we, these were really legitimately hidden fees that we did not count on, that we did not understand. And you learn. And don't forget, you got to pay Kickstarter. Yeah. Oh, you got to pay Kickstarter quite a bit of <laughs> Just money. like you pay the App Store. Exactly. They, they take less, but it's still quite a, what is it, 10%? It's, yeah, something like that. It's not insignificant on a million dollars. You're paying them. A, you're paying them a hundred grand, hundred grand. You know, that's not nothing. So we're pretty close. I actually have a, a another meeting I got to run to. And I know we had a little bit of technical difficulty at the beginning before we started. Yeah. So I we'll have to cut it a little bit short. But Jeffrey, I appreciate you being on the show. What is the best way for someone to reach out to you? Great. I'm on Twitter at Jeffrey Golden, that's a G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Golden. Jeffrey like the giraffe, Golden like the color. Jeffrey Golden on Twitter. And, and of course, as we talked about earlier, you could sign up for my newsletter game, Adventure Snack. That's adventuresnack.com. And Matt, would you say, now that I have been on the show, that I qualify as a digital marketing master? Abs, that is the qualification. You have to be on the show and then you have to share it everywhere after we release it. And that makes you a master. That is that is wonderful. I will do I will share it. And I'm very excited to have achieved that title. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jeffrey, for being on the show. We'll talk again soon. Okay, I appreciate it, Matt. Take care. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.